Open your Bibles, if you would, please, to Acts chapter 8. And while you're turning there, I'm going to read another scripture that is familiar to all of us. This is the one written by Paul in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, where he says, For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. And we all know that is the premier verses, the glorious verses of Scripture that teach us that salvation is by God's grace alone. And those are some of the greatest verses on salvation that we find in the Word of God. It tells us that salvation is not earned by any work that we do, that it is by God's gift of the atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross. That's important for us. But it is also very important also that we have a message here about Christian service. And that is that God has called us into a service. We are new creatures in Christ. And here in these verses, the Word of God says that the purpose of him calling us out and giving us uh, this, this, this uh, ordaining us for the work of God is that we might be workers in his kingdom. And specifically, I think that it's telling us here, I, I think one of the things we really need to look at is the responsibility that we have of bringing people to the Lord. Now, we can talk about various types of works that Christians do that are included in verse number 10 there, but we're going to concentrate on sharing the gospel because that is our theme on these Sunday nights for the next several weeks. And I'm happy that we have uh, somewhat of a, a core group of our membership here tonight. I mentioned a, a little while ago, a couple of weeks ago, or whatever that was, I don't remember exactly, but I remember when Pastor Cregan was here about 10 years ago, and that's, to me, that's almost hard to believe that I, now it's been almost 10 years since I've been the pastor of the church here, but I recall how much he hated summer. He, was all, he, he really hated the summer. He often complained that Christians are less faithful to church in the summer than they are any other time of the year. And so he was concerned, how do you keep people from falling out of church, getting interested in other things, and then eventually just falling out of their work for the Lord? So he was, he was concerned about people being faithful to the Lord's work. And I also recognize that as a problem. And I, I call it the nature of the beast. It's just something that we have to deal with during the summertime because this is as American schedules, this is vacation time and so forth. But it is good when we have God's people here on summer Sunday evenings. Now, during the summer, as you know, I've decided that instead of beginning a new series from uh, the Bible, one of the books of the Bible and preaching verse by verse, that we would spend some time here encouraging our people to be very faithful to this task of winning people to the Lord. And this is a good opportunity for us because this coincides with what we've been learning in Matthew chapter 13. And there we've been discussing the parables of the kingdom. And part of the parables that Jesus gave was to explain how that there would be growth in his kingdom from the time that uh, he left the world until the time that he comes back again. This is the time for witnessing and to plant the faithful, to be faithful planters of the seeds of the gospel of Christ. And so much of what I say in these messages parallels what we've learned on Sunday mornings. So we have these parables about the growth of the kingdom. 
And yet we look at what's happened to our church and we think, well, the parables must be wrong. It doesn't appear that there is any growth in the kingdom of God. And in our church, in the past few years, we've seen a lot of people leave. They've left for various reasons. And I mentioned this the other night as well, that thankfully that I can't really point out to anyone that said they were mad at us or better said they're mad at me because that's a lot, amen, something, that, that's usually what happens. But they're not mad, but because of the economy, because of health or unforeseen circumstances, they have to leave us. And that can be very discouraging to us. When people leave, that becomes troublesome to us. And so the best way for us to be encouraged is to bring new people in. And really, that is the job that God has given us to do, whether people stay or leave. It's still our responsibility to bring new people in. Now, last week, I talked about sometimes this is a problem of desire. And that's really where I I spent most of that message, talking about Christians that lose the desire, actually, to win people to the Lord. But it's not always the desire that's the problem. Sometimes it can be getting started. Sometimes it's just knowing how to go about it, just knowing what to say. Sometimes it's an issue even of courage. And I believe that all of those troubles can be overcome, and they will be overcome with the Lord's help if we just lend ourselves to do what God has called us to do, and that's to speak the gospel of Christ. Now, as we, as we look at Acts chapter 8, there very well could be an issue of courage here that would hinder people from giving the gospel to others. The chapter begins with persecution of the church. First few verses tell us about Saul, who later became the Apostle Paul. And at this time of his life, he was a very ardent persecutor of Christians. He consented to the death of Stephen at the end of chapter 7. And then he very methodically started this campaign of hunting down Christians and putting them to death. Now, just if you'll look at verse number 3 before we get to our text, it says there, As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering into every house and hailing men and women, committing them to prison. And you would think that what would happen because of this, this persecution campaign would be very effective in keeping people from witnessing. I mean, who wouldn't be afraid of Paul? I mean, here, here is the most feared man in Israel for Christians, the very mention of his name would cause people to tremble. And yet, look at verse number 4 that follows that. It says, Therefore they went, they that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. We would think that persecution would stop them, but it didn't. And when, when persecution comes, it's good to try to avoid it, but you don't avoid it and get rid of the problems by keeping quiet. So what these people did, they fanned out, and everywhere that they went, they went preaching the word of God. You see, the Holy Spirit helped them to overcome the fear of witnessing. And if he could help those people in such frightening times with the real threat of persecution and bodily harm, surely God can help us to overcome the issues that we have when we don't face those kinds of things. So our text tonight begins in verse number 26. And it says, and the angel of the Lord spake unto Philip. Now, let me stop there for just a minute. This is not Philip that was one of the apostles. This is Philip the evangelist. This is actually became evangelist after 
he was chosen to be one of the first deacons in the church. Now, we find that in Acts chapter 6. And in that chapter and, and following that, we find out that there are two standout deacons, two standout, well, I think they were all standout, but they were two standout preaching deacons in the church. One was Stephen, and the other was Philip. Now, we would think that after reading about the stoning of Stephen, that Philip would not want to go out and preach the gospel of Christ, but that he would be deterred by that, thinking, I could end up the same way as Stephen. But we go on reading, and it says, And he arose, this is after the angel came to him, And he arose and went, and behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, and had charge of all of her treasure, had come to Jerusalem for to worship was returning and sitting in his chariot, read Isaiah the prophet. Then the Spirit said unto Philip, Go near and join thyself to this chariot. And Philip ran thither to him and heard him read the prophet Isaiah and said, Understandest thou what thou readest? And he said, How can I, except some man should guide me? And he desired Philip that he would come up and sit with him. The place of the scripture which he read was this, He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and like a lamb dumb before his shearer, so opened he not his mouth. In his humiliation, his judgment was taken away. And who shall declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. And the eunuch answered Philip and said, I pray thee, of whom speaketh the prophet this, of himself or some other man? Then Philip opened his mouth and began at the same scripture and preached unto him Jesus. And as they went on their way, they came into a certain water and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? And Philip said, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he commanded the chariot to stand still, and they went both into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they were come up out of the water, the, the Spirit of the Lord caught away Philip, that the eunuch saw him no more. And he went on his way rejoicing. Now there is just a really great story and an example of how obedient believers, when they desire to answer the call of evangelism, when they decide that they're willing to be used in the service of God, that God can lead them to people, that they can show how to trust in Jesus Christ. Now, we've been ordained by God according to this good work in Ephesians chapter 2 that I read a moment ago. But there are many Christians that say, I just don't know how to do this. I don't know how. I don't even know who to talk to. How do I share my faith? Well, there's some good news in the story that we've just read because all the elements that you need are right here in the story. It tells you what to do. It tells you about the desire to answer God's call. And so we'll just look at this tonight. And, and see the example here of how that we go about this and the elements of this, things that we must use in order to win people to the Lord. Now, the first thing that I'd like you to notice this evening is that you must depend on divine direction. You see, this is what you have to realize, first of all, that this is God's work, that there, that there are eternal plans and purposes that are behind the salvation of every sinner. That there is no person in the world that actually has the spiritual ability to come to Christ in salvation. And so God's call of salvation takes a supernatural working of the Holy Spirit upon the heart. And that has to happen before anybody's ever going to believe the gospel message. 
And so before you go out, you have to realize this, that what you're doing, and if a person is going to be saved, God's the one that has to do that. You can't depend upon yourself, not your best efforts, not the greatest eloquence that you might have, not your powers of persuasion. None of that is going to convince people to believe. And so we have to remember this very basic principle that you can't convince them. You can't convince them. God has to convict them. And this is where many Christians bog down. They get right into this point, and they will say, well, I'm not eloquent. I don't speak well enough. And so can you show me some tricks and some techniques that will work? I'm not into tricks and techniques. I don't have any of those for you. Since God hasn't given us the responsibility of convincing people, and since the Holy Spirit must do the convicting, all that you really need is to be willing to go. And if you know enough how to be saved yourself, then you know enough to tell somebody else how to be saved also. Philip was willing to do this, and so he surrendered to the divine direction that God gave him. So the angel came and spoke to him and told him what to do. In verse number 27, it says that Philip arose and went. And some of you might think, well, if the angel came to Philip and told him to go, then what I need to do is wait for an angel to come and tell me to go. And then when I get an angel to show up, then I'll just go and do it. Well, you don't have to wait on angels, because if you look at this text, you'll find out that Philip was already busy. Philip's already winning people to the Lord. The angel, all the angel did was come and switch his direction and take him to another place. So you have to remember this. You can't convince people. So you never worry about the rate of success that you're going to have, and you don't need angels to come and tell you to do it. You don't worry about any of those things because this part is left up to God. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, I have planted... Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then neither is he that planteth anything, neither is he that watereth, but God that giveth the increase. So I I don't go out, and you shouldn't go out thinking, well, I've got a quota to fill, and and I'm going to take the credit for whoever does come. This, This is not what the Word of God says. The person who gives the message is not anything. The pastor who stands up here and and explains more to you, he's not anything. The one who's something is God himself. God's the one who, who waters, and, or God's the one, rather, who gives the increase for the word that we give to people. Now, in the parable of the sower in Matthew 13, we saw there that the success of giving the gospel to people was very low. As far as us looking at this, it, it's a difficult job, at least in this sense. It doesn't look like we're going to have much success at it. But Jesus said, don't expect it. Uh, He's going to do what he's going to do with the word. And so there's a very low success rate. Very few of those seeds actually grew into a healthy plant. And so what we have to do is remember what the word of God says in Isaiah chapter, chapter 55 that we've spent some time on in the Sunday morning sermons where God says, For as the rain cometh down and the snow from heaven and returneth not thither, but watereth the earth and maketh it bring forth in bud, that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereunto I sent it. Now, those are some verses that tell us about divine direction. One of the things it tells us here, I believe, is that God knows the person and the place. Now, if you read earlier in Acts chapter 8, you find there that Philip was already having great success where he was. 
He was speaking to crowds in Samaria. Many people listened to what he had to say, and they were saved. And so Philip must have wondered, why would God do this? Why would God lift me from this place where there are crowds attending and people are coming to the Lord, people are believing the message, and instead God wants to send me to this secluded place on this desert road to find one man? Now, if there's anything that we ought to learn from that, it is that God has his eye on the, on the individual. God knows us before he calls. He knows every person whose name is written in the book of life. He knows where to find them. God does not cast out a net and hope to snag a few. He sends the word to reach the ones that he intends to reach. Now, here is a man that's out on a desert road, and Philip was, go, was sent to, to meet this one man. Now, he didn't try to figure out why God switched his direction. He just went because this is the person that God would send him to, and God put him in the particular place. He knew that there was a lost man there, and he sent Philip to find him. And I, and I believe, I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm happy that I believe in a God like that, that, that there is a God that knows me individually, that when, when I believed, this, this wasn't a surprise to him. He, he planned that. He purposed it. He, he knew the person, me. He, he knew the place where I would be. And that was in that little country church up in the hills of Kentucky. He knew all of those things. God may not reveal to us who the people are that we're supposed to speak to and before we go, but he does do this. He, he has people out there that he's, going to, that he's going to save. It's not our responsibility to find out who they are. The, our responsibility is scatter seeds, give the gospel to people. So when you and I obey and we do what God says, God has people for us to speak to. So you don't really have to worry about how convincing you are. You, you don't have to worry about how well you can speak. I mean, if we're really dependent upon this, that the Holy Spirit is the one that convicts the heart, then the Holy Spirit is going to do that in the time and the place that he chooses. Now, sometimes we don't see the results immediately. The people that you talk to about the Lord, you can't say, well, that, that person is never going to believe. He didn't receive the gospel when I gave it to him, and so that's the, the, the cause is lost. And so, therefore, there is no success with the gospel. You don't know that. You don't know how long it's going to take for a, spree, for a seed to sprout. And someone talked to me about this the other day, that, that people hear the gospel many times, and they don't come. They keep rejecting. You know, we have, ne we have never taught that the grace of God is irresistible in this sense because everybody resists the grace of God. Every single person in the world resists the grace of God. And when God begins to speak to that person effectually, then God accomplishes his purpose. Now, we go on here... Because when you're ready to go, God is going to lead you to some unexpected people in unexpected places. So what do you do? Well, number two is that you expect the unexpected. God told Philip, he said, or the angel said to Philip, Arise and go towards the south, the way that goeth down from Jerusalem unto Gaza, which is desert. Now, Gaza is a place on the southern coastline of Israel, right next to the Arabian Peninsula. And... It's the short, it lies on the shortest path from, from Israel to Egypt and points south on the African continent. Now, there were two roads that led south that went through this area. And since this is the shortest distance that you would go from Israel to get to those places, one of these roads was a very well-traveled road. But the scripture tells us here that the eunuch was traveling on a desert road. 
And that means that this wasn't a well-traveled road. This is what we might call a secondary road. It's not a road that everyone traveled. And for this man to be on that lesser travel road, that's hardly a coincidence. Philip had no idea what to expect. He didn't know what kind of person that God was going to lead him to. And, and really, being on a lesser traveled road, it's not a place that you'd actually want to go. Because in those days, probably like it is, maybe like it is now, you, you get out places where you're alone and where there's not many people traveling. They had possibilities running into thieves and robbers all the time. And one of the reasons that people stuck to well-traveled roads is because there was safety in the numbers. So here was a man off the beaten path on a secondary road, and God sends Philip to this man in this out-of-the-way place to talk to him. And Philip found there something that he didn't expect to find. He finds an unusual man who's on an unusual route. And I want to point out to you three characteristics of this man that, that Philip found. First of all, he was scorned because of his skin. Now, in verse number 5, the Scripture says, Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ unto them. Now, I'm going back to the beginning of the chapter, so don't get mixed up on me. Back in verse 5, Philip went down to Samaria and preached to those people there. Now, that, that's a Scripture that's actually packed with a lot of hidden meaning. Philip preached to Samaritans, and that's monumental in itself that we could spend a lot of time talking about that. I want you to understand something about this, and this is one of the points that I thought that I really need to clarify and to get across what I, what I want to tell you here, that Philip was what you call a Hellenistic Jew. Now, he was not a... Uh, all the names, if you go back to Acts chapter 6, and there you find when the first deacons were chosen for the church. There are seven of those. And the issue arose over the Hellenistic Jews that were in the congregation that they felt like their widows were being neglected. And so they chose seven men to take care of the administration of food for these widows and take care of some of those administrative responsibilities. And you'll notice this, that all seven of the men that are chosen, all seven names are Hellenistic Jews. And that means that they're not Hebrew. They're not Jews among the Hebrews. These are Greeks or Gentiles that were chosen. And they were proselytes. Uh, they had been Jewish proselytes, and they had come to the faith in Jesus Christ. But the point about this that I really want to make is that the, the apostles in Jerusalem, they all had to overcome na natural prejudices so that they were willing to go and speak to people like the Samaritans. Remember when Jesus went to speak to the woman at the well of Sychar, that she was surprised when Jesus, who was a Jew, would speak to her. And in her own words, she said, the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Now, even though Philip was a Hellenistic Jew, yet you see this, this, this problem still exists that you have the Jews in Jerusalem that they've grown up all their lives not liking the Samaritans. And to think that they would send Philip or anyone else, whether he's a Hellenistic Jew or whatever he is, that they would send them to Samaritans, that is a monumental feat or monumental act of God in itself that they would do this. And that's because there were no people that were more prejudiced than the Jews. And we're not talking about Jews against Jews, and we're not talking about like black versus white, and we're not talking about Latinos versus whites and against blacks. This, when we talk about Jews, we're talking about Jews against everybody else. It doesn't matter who you are. If you're not a Jew, they're against you. So it's Jews against Romans. It's Jews against Samaritans. It's Jews against anybody that you want to mention. If you're not a Jew, we don't like you. And just to have 
the Christians in this first century to go out and speak to people that they'd grown up hating all of their lives. That's a monumental act of God. The great 17th and 18th century commentator Matthew Henry said, the Ethiopians were looked upon as the meanest and the most despicable of the nations. Now, here Philip had been sent to this man who is an Ethiopian. Now, we talk about about Jews hating Gentiles. These Ethiopians were the worst of the enemies of the Jews as far as race is concerned. They were very prejudicial, prejudicial against them, and this even was so among the, the Greek-speaking people, the Roman world. They hated the Ethiopians. Now, I want you to listen to what Matthew Henry says because it's not a kind comment. The Ethiopians were looked upon as the meanest and most despicable of the nations, blackamoors, as if nature had stigmatized them, yet the gospel is sent to them and divine grace looks upon them. Now, there you see prejudice. These are the most hated of all the Gentiles, and I can just put it as simply as I can to you. Their skin color, yes, their skin color played a part in this. Matthew Henry used the word blackamoors. That's an archaic term. We don't use that term today, but in his time, it was a very serious racial slur. And if you look closely at that, you find the time period of Matthew Henry kind of bleeding through his comments there. And you can see some of the, maybe a little bit of the prejudice of his time coming through in his commentary. And I don't think that we fully understand the natural prejudice that Philip had to overcome, the other Jews had to overcome. But when he was saved, God changed Philip, and he made him willing that he would gladly speak to someone that he never would have spoken to before. Now, there are many people that overlook this fact in the Scriptures that this is exactly what God intended for us to overcome when he sent men like Philip into other parts of the world to preach the gospel. The Apostle Paul said, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for ye are all one in Christ Jesus. And I know that there are some who would like to turn this statement of Paul into an argument for the universal fatherhood of God and the universal brotherhood of man. That's not what Paul is saying here. What Paul is saying is that to God, your skin color doesn't matter. And your gender doesn't matter. One person doesn't receive salvation or the blessings of salvation more than another because of his race or because of his nationality. Now, I hope that as I'm speaking to you, that I'm speaking to the choir, so to speak, that you know these things. And we're happy that we have diversity in our church and we have great race relations in our church. This is not an issue for us, but you well know that this is not the way it is in America everywhere. I can take you back to where I grew up in Kentucky, and it's still the same there among many people today, people who say that they're Christians, and they will smile at people of a different race, but inside the hatred remains. When God calls you to go, it may not be to someone or that looks exactly like you. And maybe they're not your preferred color, and I would say shame on you if that's the case. Maybe it's not your preferred neighborhood or your preferred class. And again, if that's the case, then you've got some very serious talking to God to do. We need to be prepared to give the gospel to every person, and God may lead you to the kind of people that you least expect. Now, it's interesting here, 
with the racial difference, the way that Philip had been changed inwardly and overcame that natural prejudice. But there's a huge issue of irony in the story, a real issue of irony here, because this one that Philip would have rejected at any other time if he hadn't known Christ was actually a man who was superior in status to him. You look in the story, he's a eunuch under the authority of Candace, who is the queen of the Ethiopians. Now, Candace, that's not a proper name. That's the same thing as saying the pharaoh of Egypt or saying the king of a particular land. And so that's like saying Caesar, for instance. Candace is the title, and she was the queen of Ethiopia. And we're used to seeing this word eunuch in other places, and we think, well, this means in a sexual way. But this is not talking about a sexual case here. This is talking about a man of position. The word eunuch was also used in that way. And in this case, it means like a counselor of state. And here, he is the one who has charge of all the treasury of the queen of Ethiopia. That means he is the treasurer of this kingdom. And then we get the idea that sometimes this, this, this eunuch was some poor old guy out here sitting alone on the road with nobody around and he's standing in the back of this small little chariot reading this scroll. This man wouldn't have been alone. This man is an official, a high official in the Ethiopian government. He would have been traveling with an entourage. There would have been a caravan with him, and he wouldn't have been standing in a little bitty chariot. He would be in the Rolls Royce of chariots. And he would be standing in the back of this huge chariot with a canopy over it and probably servants fanning him in order to keep him cool. So here is a very powerful man. He's a government official. He's not somebody that you would just normally walk up to and start a conversation. And especially if you're a a dusty old traveling Jew, you're not going to be able to walk up to this man and talk to him. You normally couldn't get close to him. But here's what happens, folks. When God begins to trouble the heart of a person, when he troubles the soul, that person's power, And that person's fortune, and whatever he is, that just seems to melt away, and that's no longer an issue. Sometimes we think that the gospel is for the poor and the middle class, and what we're afraid to do is to speak to the rich and powerful. And I remember when we ran buses in our church in Kentucky, and we ran a lot of buses and brought in hundreds and hundreds of of people to church, but I'll confess to you that one of the things that we didn't do we didn't regularly run buses into the rich neighborhoods. And we may have been guilty of putting an unintended reproach upon the gospel as acting as if the gospel is not sophisticated enough for rich people. Oh, that person is not going to believe he's too rich. Or that person is too educated. Who's too smart? Too smart to believe the gospel. Jesus said that it's harder to reach rich people than it is others because they have a tendency to be self-sufficient and independent. The apostle Paul said, For you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But we notice in the scripture that Paul says not many. He doesn't say not any. See, God can lead you into the path of someone you didn't expect to see. And who knows, that person might even be a rich person. And they need to hear the gospel as much as anybody. You know, a few years ago, Uh, in that church that I mentioned last week, the one in Kentucky that was so close to my house, they decided that they were going to send thousands of letters to Britney Spears. Uh, The pastor, well, he doesn't call himself a pastor. As I told you last week, he's the lead follower, not the pastor. But the the lead follower of that church, 
um, said he was very concerned about Britney Spears and all of her family issues. And they just wanted to send her some letters just to show how much they really cared. Now, I think the whole thing was a publicity stunt and that uh, they didn't have a... I know this, they didn't have a gospel to send her anywhere, uh, send her anyway, I mean. But it still shows us something there, though, that, that everybody needs the gospel. doesn't matter who they are. The poorest person in Santa Rosa to the richest person lives in Fountain Grove. Anybody live in Fountain Grove, by the way? Um... The, you know, some of those big multi-million dollar houses up there, those people need the gospel as much as anybody else. So we don't ever want to have the idea that the message that we have to give to people doesn't quite measure up to their standards. And so whether scorned, someone who's beneath your social status, or whether it's someone superior, above your social status, all people need the saving gospel of Christ. And when you're willing to go to the unexpected and expect the unexpected, then God may surprise you with the kind of person that will believe the message of Christ. Now, there's another interesting point about this man, and this may have been even more surprising than all of that, the irony of the situation. Another thing here is that he was a sinner that was seeking. Sometimes there are people that are seeking. And you say, well, that can't be. The Word of God says that there's no one who seeks after God. Well, of course, that's true in one sense. Before a person ever starts to seek God, God has to put it in his heart to do so. But this is what God does a lot of times. He, he begins to prepare the heart of people before you ever get there. And we don't always see it as clearly as we do with this man. And when you think about your opportunities to present the gospel, do you often find yourself just kind of stepping back and thinking about the situation, surveying it all, and more often than not, we're concerned, is the body language right? Is this person ready to hear what I have to say? Can I, can I, can I, do I have an icebreaker here, some way to get into the conversation? And so you gauge all that body language of the person you're talking to, and you wonder if that's appropriate. And sometimes God just surprises you because the person that he wants you to talk to is somebody who's just been waiting for another person who has answers to the problems and the questions that they've been asking. Let me back up just a minute before I get more into that. Sometimes people do give you an opening. I mean, a real opening to talk to them about the Lord. You, last night, after I got home from the picnic, my wife said, well, there was a guy who came by here earlier, and he's trying to get us to switch from um, U-verse, AT&T U-verse. He's trying to get us to switch all of our phones and our Internet and all of that, the television, over to Comcast. Xfinity or whatever it is. I'm not trying to sell anything to you folks. But he said, this, this guy came by, and he said he was going to come back later to see you. And I said, oh, man. Last thing that I want on Saturday night is for a salesman to come by here, and I've got five screaming grandkids in the house, and I've got to go out here and talk to this fella. And so I saw him. I didn't know who he was at first, but I, I was standing at the kitchen window, and I saw him walking up the sidewalk, and he looked into the window right at me. And so it wasn't like, tell him I'm not here. I couldn't do that. So he looks through the window, and he sees me, and he, sure enough, he comes knocking on the door. And I'm, I'm standing there, and I was holding one baby in my arms. And I'm trying, I was trying to eat a little bit at the same time. And it was supper time and all this, you know, trying to get everything done. And he rings the doorbell, and I stood there, and he rang it again, and I stood there. And my wife said, are you not going to answer the door? And the kids all start running towards the front door. 
And, and you know, they, they obviously, we're home. So I open up the door, and he, you know, I, I try to be polite to him, and he begins to talk to me about when to switch this over. And so he's going to show me this great deal that he has for us. And he said, look at this. You get all of these, you get all these packages, all these movie channels and all of this, but there's a couple things on here you can't get. And he said, you're not going to get the Playboy channel, and you're not going to have something else that he said. And I said, well, you know something? I really don't care to get the Playboy channel or any of the other channels for that matter because there's just stuff on there that's too filthy to watch. And he said, oh, I understand that. You got, he told me, hand one of the grandbabies. He said, oh, you got little kids in the house. Well, here's the good thing about it. We've got controls where you can shut that off. I said, no, 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 you don't understand. You don't understand. I'm a Christian. And I don't do those things. I, I don't want any of that stuff. And that gave me an opportunity. And so I said to him, are you a Christian too? Now, as I was telling you about a week or so ago, this is one of those times when people deflect your questions. And he said, what, just what I told you what, just a couple of weeks ago, what people often say, granddaddy was a preacher. That's the answer to the question, are you a Christian? Granddaddy was a preacher. Well, we talked a little bit longer, and I found out that he had been attending some at a church down the street there. He lived actually lived very, fairly close by, but he works here in Rona Park. And so I said, well, let me get you my card. And I said, I want you to come and visit us. I'll talk to you. You come and visit us. And, and I said, are you, are, you are a Christian. And he said, oh, well, we went through all of that. And he, you know, he says, I'm, I'm a believer. And I said, well, great. great. We'd, we'd like to minister to you. But you see those opportunities come by, and, and sometimes it just opens up for you. And, and there it's right there before you. Well, here was this man, and, and he's reading in the Scriptures when Philip comes up to him. And he's just waiting, really, for someone to come and answer his questions. Now, this man was a Jewish proselyte. He had been to Jerusalem, and he had been there probably for the feast and all of that, and, and he was returning home. But what he found there in Jerusalem wasn't quite satisfying to him, and he was beginning to wonder, was what he was reading in Scripture, was this really aligned with this faith that he had come to? Was well, He didn't understand about the Messiah and how that affected his relationship with God. Now, I don't think that Philip was expecting to find anything like this person. Here is a man who's trying to worship God. Now, interestingly, the word worship here, in verse number 27, does indicate that he is returning from some type of pilgrimage as he went to Jerusalem. So Philip found here a devout, honest seeker. And I think he was like Cornelius that we read about in Acts chapter 10, that he had already been prepared by the Holy Spirit for this message. Now, but here is a man that it's more obvious in him than it is in most people. And you'll be surprised how many times that God will put you into the path of people that are troubling and seeking. As I said a moment ago, they're looking for answers already. I've seen this happen with people at work, that a coworker has a problem and they don't know who to turn to. But there is a, a Christian who works in the same office or in the same factory, whatever, whatever it might be. And here's a Christian that really lives his faith. I mean, this is somebody, you watch them as a Christian. You know, there's really something different about that person. They don't seem to have all the issues that go on with other people. They don't seem to have all of the problems that other people have. Now, who do you think that that person who has a problem is going to go and talk to? Are they going to find somebody that's in deep as they are, as many problems as they have, or are they going to turn to a Christian who appears to have some answers to some questions? 
there's a whole lot of value in living your faith at your work or wherever you are because when people get into trouble, you may be the one that they'll come to. And the question for you is, do you have the answers to their questions? Does anybody even know that you have answers? So you have to be ready and available to this for this because God can do the unexpected. He will use you when you least expect it. When you act and talk like you should, when you act, when you would just be a Christian where you are, people will watch what you're doing, and when they're troubled, they'll come to you. Here's what Peter said. He said, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. So again, be prepared. God will, may just put you in the path of somebody who's seeking. So if God has put you into the path that someone is seeking, what do you do then? Third thing you have to do is you have to finalize the faith. Finalize the faith. Now, this is one of the clearest examples in Scripture I think you can find where God is directing the process of this man coming to salvation. Philip is the witness. He's directed to go to a particular person, a particular spot. Here is a man whose heart is in the receptive mode. He's already reading the Scriptures, and where is he reading? One of the clearest places in the Old Testament to be found on the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And he's reading this, and remarkably, in verse number 29, the Holy Spirit speaks to Philip and says, Go, join yourself to his chariot. And I don't think that you read this part and you say, Whoa, I wonder what the outcome of this is going to be. Philip's going to get kicked out of the chariot. Is this man going to be saved or won't he? I don't, I don't think we have any questions like that. We know what's going to happen. We, we don't say, boy, I hope this guy makes the right choice. No, we have a sense of this. We, we, we're reading the story, and before we ever get to this part, we know what's going to happen. This man's reading Isaiah 53. He's puzzled by the meaning of it. He's reading the text aloud. And what does Philip do? He seizes that opportunity. And that's what you have to do. Seize the opportunity. God put him in the path And he took the opportunity because this man was not going to sit there forever. Here is a man who's busy. He's not going to linger long because he's got to get back to his job, to his duties there in the country of Ethiopia. Philip heard him reading, and he says, Do you understand what you're reading? There's Philip's opening. Don't miss the golden opportunities. Don't put them off because the person that that you're trying to reach may be off to something else very quickly. You lose the moment. And you say, oh, well, you're just denying what you just said a moment ago. I mean, how can you lose the moment if God's going to save this person? Well, we certainly do believe that God is in control of the timing of every person's salvation, but he never says to any of us to let the opportunities go and says, if you don't speak to this person, then I've got somebody else who will. And so they're going to get saved anyway. If you think that, you have got the wrong idea of what this whole doctrine that we teach is all about. No, we have to take the opportunities that God puts in front of us because as far as we're concerned, that person may never hear the gospel of Jesus Christ again. You don't know how God's going to deal with them. You have to take the opportunity then, and when the door opens, you have to walk through it. So Philip says, do you understand what you're reading And the answer that the Ethiopian gave is an interesting one. You might not see it at first, but he says, How can I except some man should guide me? So seize the opportunity, and number two is speak with authority. He says, How can I? Now, do you see that? That's an indication of helplessness. It's the realization 
that the word of God and the message that's here is too far above human understanding. Do you know the only reason that you know what Isaiah 53 means? Do you know the only reason that you understand that? Someone has already showed you that. We're as helpless to understand what Isaiah 53 means as this guy 2,000 years ago on that road in the desert. We have no ability to comprehend that on our own. Somebody has to have already told us what that scripture means. And this is what Philip did. I mean, it's, it's only recognizable because somebody knows what the truth of it is. And so he says, how can I except some man should guide me? And it's really the second part of that question that I wanted to deal with most. And that says, that is, except some man should guide me. And the word guide there is used in the same sense of people that are blind. And so what this man does is articulate by his own experience what the Apostle Paul would write years later in 2 Corinthians 4 when he said, But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, and whom the God of this world hath blinded them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. So here is a man who needs the gospel because he is blind. Not physically, spiritually blind. He can't see this. There's no way anyone can. And the condition here speaks as much to the person who asked the question as the one who answers the question. Because the word guide also means to speak and to interpret with authority. In other words, he needs someone to interpret the word correctly and has the authority to do so. And the person with that authority was Philip. And so the verse, the Bible says in verse 35, Then Philip opened his mouth and began at the same scripture and preached unto him Jesus. So Philip is the man at God's appointed hour in the particular place. And the reason that I started out with Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 is because if you have been saved by the grace of God, then you have the authority to preach Jesus. You have not only the authority, you have the responsibility because the Word of God says you have been ordained to this good work of witnessing for Christ. So here's a man who's imperfect in his faith. God planted the desire, the Spirit puts the desire, and then God opened up his heart. And he's in the right place. He's reading the Bible. And Philip tells him about the Christ found in Isaiah 53. And then his faith was finalized. The eunuch says, I pray thee, or I'm asking you, who is Isaiah talking about? He was led as a sheep to the slaughter. Who is that? Is he speaking of himself? Is he speaking of someone else? And the Bible says at that point, Philip opened it all up and preached unto him Jesus. So we know the result. The man believed. He became a Christian. He was unsatisfied with what he had found before, but now he becomes perfectly satisfied with Jesus. And so he believed, and he was saved, and he took that very first step of obedience to the Lord. You know what he did? You know, he got baptized. didn't take him just a fraction of a second almost, it seems like. They're just, you know, riding along discussing, and he says, well, let me just back up to here. There's a lot that I could say. There's so much to preach in this passage. I mean, there's so much to preach here that Philip had to have told him also about this, didn't he, about baptism? How else would the eunuch ever ask the question, here's a lot of water, Why, what hinders me from being baptized? And Philip said, you didn't need a lot of water, I've got a thimble over here. Let's dump it on your head and I'll bat." No, he said, hey, there's a lot of water here, let's go get baptized. And so 
Philip and him both went down into the water. And then they came back up. Now, Philip told him about Christ. The man believes the Christ of Act or Isaiah chapter 53. And so we would ask the question then, how was this man saved? How, how did he get saved? Well, we know he was saved because he believed in Christ, what's spoken there in Isaiah 53. But couldn't we also say this, that this man got saved because Philip was there? That this man got saved because... Philip was willing to give him the gospel of Jesus Christ. Wasn't that a necessary part of this as well? He had to have somebody tell him. So Philip was called to go, and Philip got up and went. And so this man, who is on his journey sad because he doesn't understand, leaves rejoicing because his eyes have been opened to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now this is what I have to wonder about, and we all should wonder about. If God has called you to salvation then you know he's also called you to service, which means he's called you to be a witness. There are opportunities that are available. There are souls that are in need of help, and they're just waiting for somebody to answer the call. Let me just give you a brief illustration as we close tonight. There was a Christian man who was dressed for church on Sunday morning, and just as he was leaving his house, there was a neighbor that was going out at the same time and he stepped out the door and and the neighbor was coming out with his golf clubs the neighbor shouted to him he said john come and go golfing with me and john said well i can't go golfing it's sunday and i have to go to church and the neighbor said well john I, i admire your faith and i admire your determination to follow your faith and to go to church he said but john this is the seventh or eighth time that i've asked you to go golfing with me on a sunday And he said, not one time did you ever ask me to go to church with you. Are you the kind of person that's really quick to answer an invitation for lunch, but you've never offered an invitation for somebody to come to church with you? Not a coworker, not a friend. Have you ever said to anybody, would you come and just join me at my church? We've all been called to service. We don't need angels to repeat the call to us. It is so clear that we need nothing else here than just the Word of God and the examples that are given in the pages of the Bible. God has called us to do this. And this is how God's kingdom grows, by doing just what Philip did. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your Word. And and Lord, I ask that you would open our eyes to the truth of your Scriptures. And these things are not put here just as stories to be told. But there's a lesson to be learned here. There's an example to be followed. And we find everything here that we need. We, we need the divine direction from you. We depend upon you to convince people of the message that we give them. We, we just carry out our responsibility to sow the seeds of the gospel, and we let you take care of that. And, Lord, I pray that you would impress upon our hearts to take all the available opportunities that have been given that we would tell people about you. So, Lord, bless us. Speak to your people tonight. Convict us of not giving the gospel enough because none of us do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.